This is the Freestyle Way. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Freestyle Way podcast. This is your host, <laughs> me, uh, Carl Powley. I didn't really know how to start today's podcast because I didn't have a guest and I knew I had to do a solo episode. And my brain was saying that it had to be this perfect, practical, solution conscious and driven session for you. But the truth is, I want to talk about how I got here, how I not only started the podcast, but how I got here to this point in my life. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been going through some challenging times that have been um, leading me to have to triple down on some introspection. And uh, yeah, I thought I would share because it's brought me a lot of clarity and I think it could potentially shed light on why I do what I do, how I do it, and how you can benefit from maybe listening to the podcast or maybe interacting with me in a professional setting, whether it's through my coaching practice or my membership community or the courses and workshops that I teach. So, yeah, how did I get here? How did I become who I am today? And and who am I really or who am I becoming in the process? Well, I'm not totally sure, but maybe we can make a little bit of sense of it as we go through the podcast today. And I say we because I'm referring to me and myself, but I'm also um, referring to you, the, the listener. And if you're watching on video here, uh, you, the viewer. And it's important to me that it's us and not me or we and not me. Because none of this, none of who I am or who I have become or am becoming has happened with me alone. And as I was thinking about today's podcast, I was wondering, oh, what am I going to talk about and how am I going to share something that is maybe interesting for you to listen to and that could potentially add value. And it hit me that I have to start by telling my story. And my story starts with my first memory. And my first memory is a memory of fear. Specifically, my first big, big memory. And I was probably three or four, probably closer to four. I was at a friend's house. We were just playing. And we were talking about his grandparents and about just things in life, whatever a four-year-old talks about as they're playing. And I don't know how it came up, but we started talking about death. And my friend, who was a year older, thus a year wiser, said to me that, you know, Carl, everybody dies. And I thought people only died if they had an accident. I just remember having this vivid memory of people only um, going away if something tragic happened. But that day I learned that everybody, every single one of us died. And I just remember entering into this state of panic. I I can't remember anything that happened 
after that moment until I got home. And I remember running to my mother, crying, and telling her this story that I had learned that everybody dies. And that means that my parents would die, I would die, my siblings would die. And this is, this is when the awareness of our finite existence in this form yeah, became very prominent in my life. And that really shaped everything that happened to me from then on. Then if we fast forward a little bit to the age of four, I remember moving to Ecuador with my parents and being in Ecuador for close to a year and going to school there and um, kind of doing life. And they're just struggling with the difference of lifestyles that existed between the United States, we were in the Bay Area, in California specifically, and Ecuador, this third world country uh, that was in development, so to speak. And just having that affect me tremendously at a very young age, just the stark contrast that existed between lifestyles between cultures and people, and how the contrast was something that, for me in that moment, felt like a divide, a crack, a place where bad things happened. And that got even more exacerbated in me when we ended up moving to Spain. My uh, father had an opportunity to go work in Spain. So we traveled there at the age of five, maybe close to six. And we started a new life in Spain. And I remember at that time having a similar experience to what I saw and witnessed in Ecuador. And specifically it was when we landed in Alicante, Spain, we had to drive an hour south, how on the side of the roads there were these chabolas, which are basically like handmade camp-out style homes. And to me that was shocking to see and to think that now this was home. And in addition to it just looking different and feeling different, it sounded different. The language was different. Although I had heard Spanish in Ecuador, now this was what I was immersed in. I was immersed in the Spanish culture. And I remember having to go to school in Spain and how just tragic it felt and how alone I felt. And this was the first time I remember looking around and not being able to relate to anybody in my surroundings and genuinely feeling alone. 
And my my only friend, and thank goodness for for him, was my younger brother, Oscar, who, for whatever reason, just cruised through it. Of course, he was younger, but he just had a way and continues to have a way of carrying himself where everything is all good. In fact, that's what he says all the time. It's all good. But for me, it was not all good. Not even close to all good. For me, it was, one, terrifying. I'm going to die. Everybody's going to die. So I was scared shitless. And now I was alone, and I didn't speak the language. I didn't have any friends, and I felt very disconnected, which, on a positive, made me feel very connected to my family, to my parents, to my siblings. I felt very safe at home. And as the years went on in Spain, we moved schools, we moved cities, we moved into a bigger city. And I remember going to this new school where now I didn't just feel alone, but I felt like an outsider. It was clear that everybody had something in common with the rest of the kids, and I just didn't. And that freaked me out. And I remember crying in school every single day, I believe for months. It sucked. But thankfully, my mother, she is very wise. She decided to take my very energetic self, which although I was, I was scared, a scared kid, I was never paralyzed. I was very active. She decided to put me into gymnastics, specifically into gymnastics that was offered as an after-school program. And I remember going into that stinky gym. I mean, it smelled like feet, some horrible mats from probably the 1950s. But feeling at home there, the mats were fun. The movements were fun. The guidance was fun. I mean, I've told this story many times, but my gymnastics coach, my first gymnastics coach, used to sit on a bench in the gymnasium smoking a cigarette and just barking orders. But I thought she was awesome. I thought it was great. And I felt very empowered. That was the first time I really felt like I had something to sink my teeth into, a place to grow some roots, a foundation to stand on. I felt like a superhero. I just felt invincible there. Like I felt like I had a progression. And fast forward a little bit, I got recruited by a local gymnastics club that had infrastructures, or at least better infrastructures, and a systematic approach to training gymnastics that allowed you to not only compete on the national circuit, but potentially one day be able to make it onto the national team and go to the Olympics. And that's when I found the Olympics. I saw this picture of a gentleman doing the Iron Cross at the Olympics in Seoul, I believe. Seoul, South Korea, 
And I was just enamored by this idea of, one, being on the rings, being so strong, and two, being in the spotlight on the biggest platform in the world when it came to sports. That's what I wanted. I just wanted to go to the Olympics. I never said it out loud. I never shared it, but I thought about it all the time, constantly. It was an obsession. So I committed to gymnastics, and that became a large part of my life. School was survival, and gymnastics was where I thrived. In school at that time, though, it wasn't just being alone in school. I was also being bullied. And I started getting heavily bullied at the age of nine, probably, eight, nine, up until I was 14. And I mean, people mocking me, people hitting me, people pushing me down the stairs, people stealing my shoes, my jacket, money, lunch, I mean, you name it, all of it. I had to ride this damn bus to gymnastics after school, and on this bus was a kid who used to punch me the whole way to my gymnastics practice. It was awful. The worst part was when I started being bullied at gymnastics, too. These suckers, they, the older kids would grab me, pin me down if I arrived early, and then they would have the, the youngest kid come in uh, with their knuckle, hit me on the chest, on my sternum. And if you do that for a while, yeah, that starts to hurt. In addition to that, I was called names, awful things, and just, again, felt alone in the place where I was thriving. One time the bullying got so bad, uh, right before going up on the high bar, I was going to do a dismount, and I was terrified of doing this dismount. We were training for a competition. And right before going up, uh, two of them said, you're going to kill yourself when you go up there. This is the end for you. And remember, I was terrified of death. And in that moment, I believed him. I believed the words that were said to me. So I went up on that high bar, did one giant, which is a big spin around the bar, two giants prepped for the dismount, the third giant, that's the one that really loads you up for the release. And in my head, all I could think about was, this is the end. And what happened was I let go of the bar early, and I, instead of going up on the dismount, ended up flying straight up and uh, landed headfirst and cracked my head open and immediately was sent to the hospital, a bunch of stitches, and then I was out of training for a little bit. Yeah, that's when it started to get really bad. And I don't even know if I told my parents that. They told me I was going to die before going on, on the bar. But I just remember that, that feeling of feeling 
really alone again and really terrified and not included. I healed from that. The wounds, the physical wounds healed. And then I turned 14. And when I turned 14, that summer, I just grew a little bigger, gained some muscle, and my body transformed. I changed. I was a lanky little kid, and then all of a sudden I had some beef on me, <laughs> some mass. And I remember going back to school, and the bullies, when they saw me, at first they were treating me the same way, but they could tell that something was different. Of course, my confidence was up because I could feel it too. I could feel that I had gained strength. I think it was on the second day of school or something like that. I stepped out of class, and uh, one of my classic bullies came up to me with another little friend. And they were saying something, and something just went off in my head. And I reached for his neck, grabbed it, and just slammed him against the wall. And I just said, don't ever touch me again. That was the last time. That was the last time they ever bothered me. But I was overcome with this guilt. I felt terrible because when I grabbed this kid by the neck and I pressed him up against the wall I could see terror in his eyes he was scared shitless in that moment and I felt terrible for inflicting any pain or a sentiment such as terror onto this kid. As much as he had hurt me, as much as I wanted to get back to him, I just felt guilty, felt gross, ashamed. I didn't want anything to do with violence. I knew that. That became clear then, that non-violence had to be the way. Funny enough, this kid was also a gymnast, and he was much better than I was in the early days, and I eventually ended up passing him by miles. And I just remember in that moment thinking, ah, I can still be competitive. I can still prove myself, stand my ground, but I don't have to do it through physical harm or emotional harm for that matter, but I can do it through gymnastics. And that became fundamental, essential in my practice. It became something that was important to me. I didn't only want to get better, but I wanted to prove myself, show that I did belong, because I felt so alone. And I managed to do that to some degree. I competed nationally in Spain. I did pretty well there. I got on the state team. And actually on the state team, 
I had a moment where I got to experience uh, real rejection for the first time when I was uh, scheduled to compete at the state nationals. And what that means is that they would take the state team and the states would compete against each other and uh, they would do that at a national level in Spain. Anyways, I was uh, scheduled to be on this team and I remember we went up to Barcelona to compete and uh, we did our warm-up training the day before, podium training, whatever you want to call it. And the next day, I was going to put my uniform on and get going and the coach, as we were walking out to compete, he put his hand on my chest and said, uh, Carl, not today. Today, you're going to be replaced by this other kid who was a good kid with a lot of talent. But at that point, I was a better choice points-wise. But this kid was his gymnast, and um, he definitely prioritized his personal relationship over uh, allowing me to be on the team. And I remember just being so disappointed that I didn't get to be a part of that moment, especially because they took second and I believed that we could have won. But there was a moment in particular that really affected me, which was at the end of the competition we were outside. Everybody was in uniform except for me. And it was time to take a, a picture for the newspaper. And I think it was the day after, probably, this article came out about um, the Valencian community, which is the state, comparatively speaking, to the United States, a community in Spain is, is a state, a province is a county. So we were part of the community team, the state team. Anyways, the article says something like, uh, state team, Valencian state team takes second place at the national championships. And then there's the picture of all of us. <laughs> and I'm standing on the side uh, in jeans and a t-shirt and everybody in uniform with their medals on. And once again, this narrative of me being an outsider came into play. And I thought, man, is this how it's going to be? Am I always going to not be enough to be a part of something? Am I always going to be so different that I can never belong? Wh where do I, where do I belong? was the question. Furthermore, what I started to feel at that time was limitation imposed by others. And although I had experienced this in my years of being bullied, I had never experienced it in that way. So that was a new feeling for me. But it didn't stop me. I continued doing gymnastics. I loved it. I wanted to be the best. So I continued to compete. And in fact, I, I was so committed to competing that I ended up uh, switching schools so that I could train more 
and I could arrange my study time and um, my exams around my training. Anyways, I moved to a new school, and uh, this is actually where I met a lot of my closest friends that I have today. But something happened to me there that was also interesting. And, and as you can see, there's a theme here, which is I'm telling you all the things that felt like obstacles, like challenges, like points of resistance. But I'm telling you these things because they were positively transforming for me. So there is a happy ending to this whole thing. Or at least I think there is. And this is what happened to me when I got into this new school. I was in this new classroom, new people, new teachers, just new vibe. It felt great. It felt awesome. I loved it. I felt free. But it didn't take long before I was sitting in class. And in front of me was this super charming girl who I loved talking to. She was great. She kept on like turning around and talking to me and we had a good time and any chance we got, we would connect. I guess it was maybe like a few weeks into being in this new school or something like that. It wasn't too long after I got there. She turns around one day and she looks me straight in the eye and she says, Carl, I was like, yeah, what's up? And she says, do you like what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror? And without skipping a beat, I was like, yes, I love it. I love myself. And she looked at me with this face. I didn't recognize the emotion or the expression. And she just slowly turned around. And I was like, whatever. Maybe 30 seconds later, she turns back around, looks me straight in the eye again. And says to me in Spanish, she says, Eres un creído de mierda. Which is, you're full of it. You're full of yourself. You're full of shit. And I was like, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where, where did this come from? I thought we were friends. I didn't say that. I just was thinking this. And that shit stuck with me. It was terrible. I remember just heading home and thinking, wait a second. Is it bad? Is it not good to like what you see in the mirror? Is one not supposed to love themselves? I was so confused. And anyways, that, that really hurt. And that's the first time I started feeling truly disempowered. And I started experiencing a lack of self-worth. That no matter how scared I was before, no matter how alone I felt, I always felt empowered. But in that moment, I truly felt disempowered and I truly felt a lack of self-worth. It was awful. It was awful. Thankfully, gymnastics was going well. I was producing results. I, um, I was known at the school as 
being this up-and-coming gymnast. I was getting little appearances on radio shows and on local TV and featured in newspapers and, yeah, doing pretty well. In the meantime, I, I also started to uh, experience having relationships and I'm, I had a girlfriend and I got to experience that whole thing and experience love and especially high school love, which is very intense. But there was always this sense that I was behind to some degree, that I was behind in the results that I was producing in gymnastics. But I wasn't able to articulate this until I remember attending a a camp that was hosted in Madrid with the national team. And trying and trying and trying to meet the standards that were asked. Me to me and falling short. Just mm, not being able to grasp it. And there, all of a sudden, the feelings of fear of the end, of things being finite, the feeling of being an outsider trying to get in, trying to belong, being alone, being disempowered, having lack of guidance, just took over my brain and said, Carl, this is the beginning of the end. And it wasn't long after that. I think it was maybe a year and a half after that. I decided to competed my last national championship, which I ended up taking fourth in and um, standing on the podium with a gold medal because I vaulted really well that day and uh, retiring, retiring from gymnastics and falling short from this dream of going to the Olympics. But I never really allowed myself to sulk in the defeat or in the failure. I immediately leaned into hanging out with my new friends that I had made in high school and specifically leaning into the passion that I had found for action sports. And something that happened to me, and this is a story I've told before, but something that happened to me was noticing that I could take everything that I had learned in gymnastics and I could apply it to action sports in a way that didn't have to match the standards of gymnastics, yet it would be considered high level in that scene. Specifically for me, it was in wakeboarding and in snowboarding. And that was cool. That was really, really cool. It was such an empowering moment to realize that I could carve out my own style, my own way, just felt great. And that was the beginning of me falling in love with this idea of freestyling, of being able to do it in a way that was unique to me, that was signature, signature style, that allowed me to do something that was expressing myself as genuinely as I possibly could 
and being able to perform at a high level at the same time. That was something I didn't get to experience in gymnastics and finally got to experience through action sports. And at that time, I was watching the X Games, and I remember watching Salima Masakela hosting the X Games and thinking, wow, this dude, he is legendary. Like This is the, the person I want to be someday. I want to be on TV. I want to be in the action sports scene. I want to talk about it. I want to make it better. I want to help improve it. I want to be immersed. And that planted the seed that started guiding me towards coming back to the U.S. where I was born. But it didn't happen until I experienced heartbreak. (laughs) My girlfriend broke up with me. And I was devastated. I was devastated. I thought I would never recover. So what I decided to do was take some time and just focus on studying. And at the time, I was studying environmental science, which was a very empowering time for me to be in college, going to university in Spain, because I, I, I learned, thanks to my older sister and older brother, that college or university was not so much about learning the material that was being taught, but rather becoming autonomous, self-sufficient, self-directed, being able to manage your time to apply yourself. And thankfully, I had very good self-direction skills because of my early commitment to gymnastics. It was a skill that was transferable, and I immediately applied to going into university and coming out successful. And one of the things that I did was I took this five-year program in environmental science, and I finished it in four. And I did it because I built a team of people He would help me go to different classes, take notes, get me the insight that I needed to simply pass the exams and get myself where I needed to be, which was for me to be at the finish line and start my life already because I felt like school was just not for me. It had never been. I appreciated it, but it was not my place to thrive. It was just my place to survive and gain the keys that would unlock our societal doors that would give me access to whatever it is that I potentially needed in terms of opportunities. And a lesson that I learned while being heartbroken was the building of teams in a way that was empowering to others And I learned this because I did the complete opposite. I basically took advantage, specifically of three girls who were just super kind, and we got along. But they would do anything that I said to them, anything that I asked of them. And one night, we were in the library, and um, 
we were studying, and they were just transcribing notes, prepping summaries, doing all these things for me because I had asked them. And I remember walking up to them and saying, hey, how's the, how's the summary coming along? And they're like, yeah, we're almost done. I said, great, I'm going to dinner. I'll be back later to pick it up. Whew. Anyways, I came back after dinner and got my summary and went home. And a few days later, they were waiting for me after class. And uh, they said, Carl, we're really disappointed in you. You have taken advantage of us. And the other night when you just walked off to go get some rest and food while we were slaving away, you didn't really seem to care about us. You only cared about yourself. And that's when I realized that I had become the bully. I had become the person I feared the most when I was a kid. That was terrible. That was awful. But this time, after I had inflicted unconscious pain on these girls who had been helping me, I felt extreme gratitude because they told me, they gave me feedback. They let me know. Hey, Carl, this is how you made us feel. And that was new to me. I had never experienced that outside of my family. And what was cool was that uh, we ended up becoming really good friends, and I have a very special bond with the three of them, although we don't talk as often as I would like to. We have a very special bond, and I would never, ever forget them. They have taught me lessons that I have carried with me at every single moment of my career. So, yeah, thank you, Pilar, Silvia, Raquel. I appreciate you. You changed my life for the better. Anyways, fast forward. I decide to leave Spain. I come to the U.S. And I came to the U.S. for adventure. And the adventure had actually started a little bit earlier on in Singapore. And it started in Singapore when I was interning at the National University of Singapore, specifically in the Marine Biology Lab, and realizing that there was a whole world out there for me to explore. I got to um, work on these amazing projects, one of them being a bioremediation project that was run by uh, now Professor Karen Tun, or Dr. Karen Tun, Prof, Prof Tun. And I also got to travel to Indonesia. I got to spend some time with uh, a team from National Geographic. And I got to spend some time with some scientists who were doing research on uh, trying to decipher how dolphins were communicating and how they had learned that there were different dialects that were spoken amongst different species. And 
I just thought that was very, very cool. And I thought, this is, this is for me. I also got to attend uh, some great talks. One of the talks that really inspired me was a PhD student who was studying great white sharks, and he discovered by tagging great white sharks that they were traveling from the coast of California all the way out to Hawaii and back. And during their travels, they would do these major deep dives into uh, really deep waters, and they were trying to figure out why. One of the theories at the time, I don't know what it would be now, but one of the theories at the time was to cool off from the travels. But this was the first time that they uh, had seen that um, great whites uh, traveled such long distances and that they moved in packs at time. And I thought that was really cool. Anyways, I came to the U.S. I specifically landed in San Francisco, California. And I started interning at the Marine Mammal Center. And there I started to realize that although environmental science was really interesting to me, my calling was in the physical realm of things. It was in gymnastics specifically. And I found a little job coaching gymnastics, coaching recreational gymnastics, a small boys team, at a place called Acrosports. And here, I started learning about applying freestyle. Specifically what I had learned when I left gymnastics and got into action sports. And I was able to apply it here with this group of boys because they were non-competitive. They didn't obey by the levels of USA Gymnastics. They simply were there to learn how to do gymnastics. And something that I write about in my book is how we got to a point in our relationship, meaning myself and the kids, where we weren't vibing. And the reason was because I was trying to embody the coach persona that I had grown up seeing. I was trying to model that that coach. And that coach was harsh. That coach was cold. That coach was strict. That coach was loud. And that was just not working for me. So one day I decided to simply ask the kids what they wanted to learn. And I was shocked to hear why they were there. They were there because they wanted to be like their superheroes. They wanted to do cool things. One of the kids said, I want to jump out of a treehouse and survive. I'm like, that's incredible. So this is when I realized that they were the boss and I was there to serve them. And for the first time, I felt like every single experience and moment in my life had led to a role that fit all of those lessons. And that was exciting. And that's when this new chapter opened up. This is when I became Coach Carl. And what started with gymnastics later got into tumbling and trampoline and dry land training for action sports athletes and then strength and conditioning through personal training. 
later on led to finding CrossFit and CrossFit being a place that was ripe for everything that I was doing. And this was in 2007 that I found CrossFit. 2008 started going to a CrossFit affiliate, specifically San Francisco CrossFit. And they're getting to meet one of my most important mentors that I've ever had, Kelly Starrett. And Kelly Starrett was the owner and co-founder of San Francisco CrossFit with his wife, Juliet Starrett. And there I was a member. And everything that I was learning as a member there, I was applying to my coaching, my personal training. And I was starting to produce great results. And I was starting to make a name for myself within that scene, within the action sports scene, specifically as a strength and conditioning coach. Until one day, Kelly Starrett asked me if I wanted to work at San Francisco CrossFit, to which I said, no, <laughs> I'm busy. So I, I rejected him at first, but then he insisted. And after a few months, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. So I started coaching at San Francisco CrossFit, and I brought all of my business there. And this was a place where it was designed by choice, deliberately, to allow you to do whatever you had to do to succeed. And for that space to simply be there for you to do that. And to have a group of people who were willing to share ideas openly so that you could improve on your craft. And it was a revolution. And as we at San Francisco CrossFit were growing, CrossFit was exploding. It was taking off. More gyms, more affiliates, more people jumping into CrossFit, CrossFit competitions, the CrossFit games, athletes, sponsors, money, opportunities to teach seminars. So I jumped on the bandwagon. I started producing content. I created a, a website based on what I had learned from Kelly by him producing Mobility Wad. My website was called Gymnastics Wad, Gymnastics Workout of the Day. And I remember the first video that I put out within a month got over 100,000 views. And I was starting to get calls from all around the world to come and teach seminars. So that's what I did. I started going on the road. And I started deploying everything that I had learned in my gymnastics career, in my strength and conditioning career applied to action sports, into assisting people in the CrossFit space to move in a way that allowed them to perform better. I was a performance mechanic. I was there to make the small tweaks, adjust one angle, adjust a hand position, unlock new levels of potential. And I was killing it. And I was making really good money too. I had weekends where I would make $36,000 in a weekend. It was insane. And 
As this was exploding, I wasn't doing it alone. I had a partner. I entered into partnership, business partnership. And this is where things started to get tricky. And they got tricky because I didn't understand what this meant. I started a company, co-founded with somebody, signed some documents, had some lawyers, accountants, the whole thing. People started coming around, asking to be a part of it. And there was one question that kept on standing out for me. And this question was, Carl, what is your exit? What is your exit strategy? I was like, exit strategy? What do you mean? I'm not going anywhere. This is my life. Anyways, that kept on coming up over and over and over again. And I just didn't understand what people meant by having an exit strategy. Well, fast forward to making a lot of money, <laughs> having a lot of success, and now having an opportunity to put out a book and that book becoming a New York Times bestseller, being in a position where, outwardly speaking, I was at the highest level of my success, but behind the scenes, I was lost, I felt disconnected, I was in toxic relationships. I was in relationships that I didn't even know why I had said yes to. I thought I had to because if I didn't say yes, there would not be another wave later. This was an opportunity that I had to seize. I had to seize the moment. And without going into details, I ended up at a point where I decided in July of 2013 that I had to start to separate from my business partner and start to develop new partnerships with my sponsors and the work that I was doing. And it took me until the beginning of 2014 to get that process rolling. But once I did, it went downhill really quickly. And I remember finding myself in a room with our accountant, lawyer, my business partner, and trying to negotiate this separation. And uh, and just feeling completely disconnected from what was happening, just feeling like I was in a dream. And choosing at that moment, out of just pure fatigue and lack of understanding, to just go with whatever they told me. And what they told me was I had to buy my company, buy my shares back, and then uh, go back in time, and because I had signed some agreements, to um, retroactively pay a bunch of taxes. And the number was so large that I had no clue how I was going to be able to do that. And in my head, I had no other choice. Because the other choice was to file for bankruptcy, which at the time, I thought that meant that it was the end of me. I thought bankruptcy meant that I had to go to jail or something like that. <laughs> but in reality, it was simply closing a company and, and um, yeah. 
just live at a loss basically for a while. But no, I decided I was going to buy this company back. I was going to buy out my business partner, uh, separate from all my sponsors. And what did I do? Well, I tanked my company and I spent the next four years trying to just survive. And I remember just like month after month after month paying tens of thousands of dollars and being on the road working more than I had ever worked teaching these seminars that I originally loved and that people loved. But at this point, I was simply doing for the money. I just had to pay my way out. When I was almost at the finish line, the market started to slow down. My demand started to slow down. And I simply couldn't keep up with the payments. And I was just a few tens of thousand dollars away, but I just couldn't keep up. And I had built a new team and I had a few people working with me. So I had a fair amount of expenses still. And a lot came to a head at that time. And I decided that it had to end. And one of the things that made that happened was because I woke up one day with severe tinnitus, tinnitus ringing in my left ear. And it was driving me absolutely nuts. And all of a sudden, I was focused on just trying to heal my body. Not to mention, the day that I became a New York Times bestseller in 2014, and outwardly facing, I was killing it, but inwardly dying in my business, I had also become a foster parent to a teenager and I was in over my head trying to figure that out and then having not only a kid who was healing from a lifetime of trauma at home, having to navigate the foster care system, the behaviors that come with healing from that kind of trauma, having a massive wedge between me and my wife and being in a very, very dark place. And thankfully, in October of 2018, I opened up my bank account, and for the first time, I didn't have a debt. I was at zero. I was like, holy crap, what happened here? And it was my dad that came to my rescue. He said, Carl, you've been working your ass off. You don't ask for much. We've helped your other siblings along the way. Take this money. Get that debt cleared the last little bit. Move on and go live your life. You deserve it. And I remember just crying. I was at a restaurant with my wife at the time. Crying. Crying of gratitude, crying of exhaustion, but also of tremendous shame. How was I going to tell the world that I, this successful coach Carl, who has traveled the world and made great money, had a name, New York Times bestseller, How to get his dad to come and save him. Tremendous shame. And the only way that I could reconcile at the time was in passing 
that gift forward. And still today, I don't know exactly how to do it, but one of the ideas that I have is to develop a scholarship. And the scholarship um, named after my father and my mother. Yeah, so that's something that I intend to do one day as I'm currently in the rebuilding phase. So anyways, things continued on. And unfortunately, along the way, I lost my relationship with my mentor, Kelly Starrett. I actually got fired from San Francisco CrossFit on August 9th of 2016. It was terrible. I got fired via email. The office manager sent me an email and basically said, don't come in again. And it was all a simple misunderstanding that just blew up. And although it was poorly managed by Kelly and Juliet at the time, I know that I hold culpability for it it's not ever only one side but that tr truly affected me to lose a mentor and a friend and a group of people that I had been growing up alongside and all of a sudden be exiled being alone again being in a place where I no longer belonged It was terrible. It was awful. But it built this fire inside of me. And I just knew at that time that I was going to be successful. That I was going to make it. And there was this quote that I kept on thinking about that kept on coming up for me, which was, Remember why you started and you'll know how to finish. Remember why you started and you'll know how to finish. And I remembered that I started because I was curious. Because I liked it. Because I felt like I was empowered. Because I felt like I had something to offer. So all I had to do to continue forward to be successful was to share that. To share what was alive in me. To share what was true to me to share the lessons that I had learned along the way. And in my book that I co-wrote with Anthony Sherbandi, Tony Sherbandi, we used a subtitle that said, Maximize Sport and Life Performance with Four Basic Movements. And I realized that maximizing life was that which I really wanted the most. I wanted to live life to the fullest. Furthermore, I wanted people to live life to the fullest. In fact, it was never about the technical performance when I was coaching gymnastics, when I was coaching movement, when I was coaching action sports. It was always about the experience, about what you were getting from the experience. And if I could be a catalyst for bringing awareness to those who are participating in life 
aka all people, then I was expressing myself at the highest level. And that's when in 2017, before I even got rescued by my father, I realized that lifestyle design was going to be at the forefront of what I was going to do. And I started talking about this publicly. I started sharing. And the messages started coming in. And the messages were <laughs> something around uh, along the lines of uh, something my, my old business partner had told me, which was, what do you know about maximizing life? You're just a kid. Stay in your lane. You have no experience. What are you going to share? You're not even a father. You're not even a parent. You know nothing about life. That was one thing that came up for me that felt like resistance. But I knew, I knew that over time, I would have enough experience at every level. And that whatever that experience was, it was my relationship to that experience my awareness of how that experience unfolded, what I learned through those experiences, and how I could allow those teachings that life gave me to simply be a guideline for other people to process with a little bit more ease that which they are going through. Furthermore, get them where they want to go in a less painful more effective, more efficient way. And in what way? Well, in their way, their unique way, in a freestyle way. And that being the foundation of lifestyle design. Now with lifestyle design, what I ended up doing was I was starting to coach people one-on-one. I simply said, I am a lifestyle coach. And I do lifestyle design. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to teach you how to design a lifestyle that is conducive for your growth. And I'm going to help you make better decisions. I'm going to become your co-pilot, your co-director, your co-producer, your co-brain. And we're going to build something together. We're going to have a playbook. We're going to have a system. We're going to create a machine. You're going to create some awareness. You're going to have some tools and you're going to implement them and you're going to produce some results. The same way I was doing with movement in the fitness space, in the gymnastics space, in the action sports space. But now from a place of inner workings. From a place where one had to be fully in tuned with their emotions. I didn't know this at the time. But it was about emotional fitness. And this is something that became clear at the end of 2020. When in 2019, I had decided that I had to fully cut ties from teaching movement seminars and move into teaching lifestyle design seminars. In fact, I was so committed that I lined up my whole 2020 with a series of seminars that were starting to fill up. And my first stop <laughs> was going to be in China out of all places, in 2020. Around January, I get a call, message, email. It was a WeChat thing. 
saying, Carl, there's a virus around here and uh, you're not getting enough sales on your seminar, so uh, we're going to have to postpone this. No problem. As I was already scheduled to go to Asia, I decided to go to Singapore. And in Singapore, I went to teach my lifestyle design session. And when I arrived in Singapore and I arrived at the gym where I was teaching the lifestyle design seminar, people had masks on. People were looking worried. And it reminded me of 2002 when I was in Singapore. and uh, Or maybe 2003 even. And uh, SARS-CoV-1 was, um, was out. And, um, and people were walking around in masks and you're being monitored for your temperature, etc. So I got the same vibe at that time, but I felt like there was something different here. And I remember getting on the plane to fly back to the U.S. after that seminar and noticing that everybody on that plane was worried. And um, the uh, captain just suggested that we don't gather around the aisles or around the restrooms just in case there was a virus or a potential uh, opportunity for spreading this virus on the plane. And I thought, well, this this will pass. Well, little did I know, a few weeks later... Um, they asked us to shelter in place for what was going to be two weeks. And a few weeks after that, the pandemic officially broke out. And I found myself in a position where I had to cancel all of 2020. So all of a sudden, I had just overcome this big financial hurdle. I've just come out of um, clearing everything that was a mess in my business and set up for the new chapter. And uh, all of a sudden having to refund everybody who has signed up. So my bank account was back to zero. I had a little bit of savings, but not much. And as I was trying to figure out how to bring this all online, I was struggling to find traction. And I started with some free things and people started to come in and then I started to charge a little bit and the funnel became narrower. And then eventually it was one of those things where nobody was showing up. It was just crickets until I decided to put together a more in-depth, intensive experience called the interface experience, which was based on not only emotional intelligence, but rather the application of emotional intelligence, and this being emotional fitness. And I defined emotional fitness at the time, and I, I continue to define it this way, as the ability to move into a state of being that translates into purposeful action. Meaning, the ability to choose how to channel what you're experiencing in this moment so that you can have the outcome that you desire. And I asked myself, how... how do I know what that is? Well, it's because I spent the last 40 years of my life practicing this, doing this, realizing that I have been an emotional kid, an emotional person, living an emotional life in a way that was highly practical, highly effective, highly efficient, highly productive. Thus, being emotional 
was not chaotic. It was actually self-organizing. It was empowering. It was conducive for growth. It was actually a tool. So I hosted my first interface, and it was a success. People showed up. People got a lot out of it. It was confusing at times because that's what emotions are. They're confusing. But that sent me on this new path, this new journey. And here I am, talking about performance through emotional fitness in a way that is as powerful or more than what I was doing when I was teaching movement within the CrossFit space, the fitness space. And realizing that I am still developing my language. I'm still developing my lane. I'm still developing my position. And I'm still developing how I can be a contributor to you and to your life. In addition to my one-on-one coaching, my membership community that I have where I host Mentorship Monday sessions, Thinking Clearly sessions, office hours, a bunch of other things, and where I actually host my old movement seminar, it's there for you to, to watch, which is also what sponsors this, <laughs> this podcast. I'm also teaching these interface experiences that are getting better and better every day. But they are a product and a reflection of a unique experience, an individual experience. But when it comes to my experience, that's mine. That's only me. It's one out of many. So how can I share with you in a way that allows you to hear more perspectives, more experiences, more styles. Well, like this, through the podcast, by having conversations with people who have had their own experiences and have been able to come out on the other side in a successful way, in an empowered way, Furthermore, realizing that coming out on the other side is just another iteration of being in a constant state of adaptation, thus constantly living in this inflection point, meaning that you never arrive. And that being the part that excites me the most, which is leaning in to this concept of the infinite practice. Leaning into mastery, which is not a destination, but rather a path. Leaning into becoming successful, not through outcomes, but through process. And realizing that success is about producing, producing succession. Something that carries over. Something that allows you to include and transcend. And that, my friends, is the key. It's being able to see unique paths, ways, see how strengths, weaknesses are deployed, noticing how they were experienced in one's awareness, how they were translated into ideas, thus into feelings, and then into emotions that moved the body in a way that 
produced a new outcome. And that new outcome eliciting an impulse that was greater than their conditioning, thus shifting, molding, adapting, pushing, pulling, growing, expanding one's expression. And that expression, going from a reflexive, reactive one to one that is more deliberate, more conscious, more responsive, and that being deliberate practice. And that being the practice where you choose. You choose what you do and how you do it. Thus, you are in full control of what is in your control. And that's a place where, although you may experience failure, which you will actually, and you may experience dissatisfaction, but you will always be empowered. And that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And I'm happy to be a chaperone, a guide, a coach, a teacher, or whatever you need me to be in the process of doing that. And in this case of the podcast, being a host that can assist the people that come on to have conversations with me in expressing their journey and expressing their lessons in a way that can be of value to you. So that's how I got here. And where I'm going, follow along and we shall see. Okay, my friends, that concludes today's podcast. If you listened up to this point, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time, listening in as I'm sitting here in my little studio in our garage at home and looking forward to connecting with you online or through one of my courses, which if you go to freestyleconnection.com, you'll, you'll see that I have a few courses already lined up for 2023. If you're listening to this in the future, I'm sure there will be other adventures or things that you can find. Simply have to Google me. <laughs> You'll probably be able to connect. But yeah, with that being said, a lot of gratitude, a lot of love, a lot of passion for what there is to share. And looking forward to continue to connect with you through this Freestyle Way podcast and experience. Much love, everybody. Thank you. This is the Freestyle Way. Yeah.